Hello everybody and welcome to the Australian Seller Podcast. My name is Chris Thomas and I'll be your host and this is the show where we talk about all things Amazon and e-commerce, whether it be private label, wholesale, dropshipping and how you can generate a recurring income either on the side or as a full-time gig. G'day, g'day, and welcome back to the show. Today's episode is episode 70, so if you head over to theaustralianseller.com forward slash 070, you'll get all the show notes to today's conversation that I have with my very good friend, George Gruber, who I've known since about 2014. And we met at a Hong Kong trade show. This was at the HKTDC. I've forgotten what that stands for. And uh, I was walking the floor looking for some help or looking to find somebody that might be able to help me with a product that I was working on after a Kickstarter campaign. And I happened to stumble across George's booth. Now, George has amazing product development experience and he's helped me on various projects over the years as well as inventing a lot of his own products over the years. So I thought it'd be great to invite George onto the show to bring a new perspective to creating proprietary products to sell on Amazon uh, rather than just sort of sourcing a product from Alibaba, you know, that classic private model, (laughs) private label model. Uh, George and I part, also partnered on a lot of different products and we've split the costs and the profits straight down the middle to reduce the risk uh, to get a bit of experience as well selling on Amazon but also to have lots of fun together. So George creates his own unique products based on either his own needs or the problems that he sees other people experiencing. So rather than having a sook about things that are frustrating him, he actually turns those uh, negative experiences into a an opportunity to create a product and to profit from it. So I really hope that you enjoy our conversation today. Uh, if of course private coaching, if you need a bit of help, give us a call or not even a call, sorry, send me an email over at Chris at ChrisThomas.com.au and we can have a bit of a chat. Um, India I think is nearly sold out, so there might be one or two spots left. So head over to IndiaSourcingTrip.com. That's IndiaSourcingTrip.com to get in touch with Megla. Uh, to see if there's any spots left to come on that amazing trip with us. Uh, don't forget to join the Australian Seller family over on Facebook. That's uh, theaustralianseller.com forward slash Facebook. Uh, but let's get on with the show and have a listen. Totally, totally thrilled to be welcoming George Gruber to the microphone. Now, George and I met uh, way back in 2014, and when I was just I just started living in Hong Kong, and uh, I decided that I needed to fix a product that I'd kickstarted uh, because there was some feedback from the backers, and I went to the HKTDC trade show there, which is a Hong Kong Trade Development Council, I think it is, it's a massive trade show in Hong Kong, and uh, I happened to stumble across a booth where George was with his daughter Stephanie. And uh, I noticed that George had some some products there which were using a material that was very similar to what I was needing to have fixed So for my product. So we ended up having a conversation and, and since then we've been firm friends. So George, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, can you introduce yourself, give us a bit of your background and how did you become, a, I guess, a product designer? Well, thank you for having me all the way from Australia. I got started, I think my first real invention was frog tape years ago. Uh, I got started uh, because I was an airline pilot 
and I was like flying, uh, being a bird in a cage. I didn't enjoy it very much, but I flew all over the world. I did enjoy that. And I kind of wanted to get out of the airline business. And I was looking for something to do. And I ended up, first of all, developing what is called a Pro 2000. And that was a tool for the application of masking tape. And upon demonstrating that product, uh, discovered um, an idea or came across an idea for manufacturing a new style of masking tape. Am I on the right subject? Yeah, totally on the right subject because it was. <laughs> I think it was quite interesting the way that you developed this product as well. I mean, didn't wasn't there some kind of issue with a nappy or something, and and you dip the side of the tape into. You know, so the edge of a tape into the actual yeah. that, that sort of powder or something, and it ended up being incredibly successful. Well, the Pro the Pro Two Thousand was a tool where you would uh, align the masking tape, and then you would rub or oh, you go along the trim with the tool, and it applies the masking tape exactly in the corner between the wall and the trim, and it does that. The side of the roll, the masking tape, is actually against the wall when you're doing this. Mm. And in demonstrating at the Minnesota State Fair, we sold in 10 days $60,000 worth of these tools, one at a time, cash. (laughs) And in demonstration, we would do thousands of applications and allow even the potential customers to give it a try themselves, which usually resulted in a sale. Mm. But because of the side of the roll masking tape was always against our little demo wall, our window, it uh, the adhesive would rub off onto that wall. And oh boy, did that wall get sticky and it was really hard to get off. And so my colleague said, well, why don't we try dusting the side of the roll of tape with some baby powder? Well, the baby powder kept it nice and dry and, and then we didn't have that uh, problem anymore. And then I got to thinking, well, what? I, I, I'd seen this magic powder that they use for... Um, Magic tricks where they would put some powder in a hat, mm-hmm. pour water into it, and when you turn the hat over, nothing came out. Well, wow. in reality, what had happened is the water would get absorbed by this powder instantaneously, and it was like a goo. I thought, what if we, instead of using baby powder, if we put some of that powder on the sides of the roll of tape? And we did. Mm-hmm. And I put some on a window, some tape on the window, painted over it with latex paint and what happened was that little bit of powder on the edge of the tape when the when the uh, liquid paint got in contact with it changed to a gel and that prevented the tape from bleeding the paint from bleeding underneath the tape and that uh, very first try at it i was shocked i said it worked (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) and that from that simple idea became uh, frog tape which took years of development after that point Sure, sure. But the, I mean, the thing, just to be really clear, I'll just to explain what the frog tape is used for is basically when you're painting your house or and you're trying to paint along like a skirting board or something like that, and it you just run some masking tape along the edge of, this, of the skirting board, and then you can kind of paint along and stop the paint from, you know, bleeding. Yes. It just keeps your edges really straight, right? It's just a really clever idea. I know that 3M got involved too at some point, didn't they? But they weren't very happy with... Well, we tried to get thought. 3M involved. We actually tried to get them involved because they they had the number one painter's grade masking tape and they called it blue tape. Yeah, we've got that here. People are, mm. What's that? We've got blue tape here in Australia. It's the number one selling kind of masking tape for, for painting, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, uh, but frog tape... Uh, 
at the time, that was a $50 million a year business for 3M. And we came in with frog tape and we really tried to sell it. We did demonstrations at 3M in their headquarters with all their lab technicians. Mm-hmm. Had great results, but 3M, uh, they didn't bite on that one. And mm-hmm. years later, they did. But it was, it was too late then <laughs> for them to get it. Uh, what a shame. Anyway, so now one of the things that you, we've, well, you worked on, um, I guess last year was the the computer keyboard stand, which is now for sale on Amazon. I gave you a bit of a hand with the listing um, uh, earlier this year, and that that product's really taken off. But um, you've had lots of ideas, uh, you know, selling or creating products and inventing products as a designer. One of them that springs to mind was, uh, which I haven't really caught up with you about, but was with the mailbox sensor idea that you had. Because in America, as I understand it, there's a lot of, well, people live a long, can often live a long way. Their house is a long way away from where the mailbox actually is. And so you you came up with an idea to um, find out if there was mail in your letterbox and then get notified by an app or something. Is that was that accurate, how, how that product was was sort of coming, coming along? Exactly. With in fact, I currently have one in my mailbox. Right. So I use, um, well, I can't say the word, but I will hear shortly. But if I say, Alexa, what's in my mailbox? Wow. Your mailbox is empty. Did you hear that? I did. Sorry, I did. I think I, I might have spoken over it, but she said that the mailbox is empty. That's correct. Okay, so that's that's really cool. That's kind of right into Amazon's ecosystem. So how do you, oh, this is way off topic, but how did you create a, a an Alexa app to tell you if you've got letters in your mailbox or not. Oh boy, that's quite a process. Or <laughs> <laughs> right, well, maybe we'll keep it short, but it sounds, that sounds really the, fun. Uh, the first thing was is that it was the mailbox was connected to the internet, so you needed to go to a go on a web browser and look up your page, and that would determine whether or not you knew what was happening with your mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we thought, well, what if we put it on Alexa? And now, of course, Alexa's looking at me right now. But um, <laughs> and that turned out to be the most, the best interface because really, in the end, what you want to know, is there mail or is there not mail in my mailbox? Mm-hmm. Saves you a trip to the mailbox. And if, for instance, your mailbox was at the post office, then you it may accumulate. So this will actually tell you how many deliveries you've had. Mm-hmm. And then when your mailbox... When you empty it, whether it's you or somebody else empties it, then you will it will reply that your mailbox is empty. Cool. Very simple. It's basically um, basically a food scale. Yeah. And every time, every time mail is added or subtracted, there's a change of weight. I think it was really, it was really interesting how you came up with that. That well, not so much how you came up with the idea. I think it was more about. When I first saw the first prototypes that you put together, geez, I think it was back in Hong Kong a, a few years back, but it used a, some kind of sensor, like a like almost like a radar or something inside the where you stuck it to the top of the yes, yeah, and then you went with yes, the weight. Originally had originally it, it was on the inside of the top of the mailbox. That's right, and it looked down with six time of flight sensors. Right, so it could actually measure the change of the size of the mailbox. So when mail was added, obviously there's a change in the size. Mm. You can measure that. Very sophisticated, very complicated, and subject to a bit of error in the process. And then there was a, it was not long ago, came up with the idea of just using a scale, which just tremendously simplified the process. Mm. 
uh, makes it a very economical product to produce. So are you going to produce that product or is it on the back burner at the moment? Well, the, um, because it uses cellular network, I've always felt that the target market would be for the service providers. In, in America, that's AT&T and Verizon. Mm-hmm. In your country, it's different. Yeah. But because they sell you a cellular service, if you put one of the devices in your mailbox, they could add 2 or $3 a month onto your service plan. Yeah. And I thought that was the best business model because the uh, hardware itself is a little bit like the printer and the ink. You, you really don't tr- make money on the hardware or the printer. You make money on the replacement cartridges, the ink. In this case, it would be your service. The subscription, yeah. yeah. So I tell you what, the challenge is getting to the um, getting to have a sit down and have a chat with one of these big companies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it... Um... I think, yeah, I think you should really give that a bit of a push because I really like that idea and it just amazes me how many ideas you came up, you've come up with over the years. Now, in I think it was around perhaps later in 2014, I think it was the October HKTDC trade show, we were there again together. You came across from the United States. I was still living in Hong Kong and I started walking the, the floors of the trade show and found the doggy fun. <laughs> I reckon we should have a chat about that story because that, that turned out to oh, be a really, yes. really, really fun story. So... So, oh, I thought I thought at that point. Now I was convinced you were a little wacko <laughs> that, that you would be interested in marketing a, a, a ball thrower for dogs. That's what it was. And, well, yeah. I guess I joined you as a wacko and became a wacko myself. And, yeah, and we did it. Didn't we we did. I think I think we did. We we had a bit of success with that product. I mean, it was the the boys from Asda, which was the name of the company in Taiwan. There was a special area of of HKTDC that was set up for the Taiwanese manufacturers and and who were exhibiting there, and they had this doggy fun thing. And just like the trade show that you were talking about in Minnesota, they were demonstrating their doggy fun toy, which um, you put a ball in the top and it spits a ball out the front for your dog to fetch and. If you can train your dog, you can get the dog to basically um, fetch the ball all day long, drop the ball itself into the top of the machine, and it'll spit it straight out the the front of it. But um, so these these were big and I'd argue quite heavy items, and we we had quite a few hundred units shipped from Taiwan. But even before that, we actually met the boys, didn't we? We went to Taiwan together. We flew from Hong Kong and straight up to Taipei, and then we were whisked. Uh, to their office in this big black Mercedes Benz, and took went out for lunch at the Hilton, and they they plied us with with beer and food, and we we got to know all about them and their families, and it was just an amazing afternoon. And and then I think, and then after that, we all, you and I basically we went to the Taipei One Hundred One, which is the world's at the time, I think the second largest building, and checked that out. Although it was quite cloudy that day, so we didn't we didn't go to the top or anything, but but yeah, we we formed a pretty strong relationship with them. And um, started selling the doggy fun on Amazon quite successfully for for a few months, uh, and then Asda told us that they'd come out with a new version of the product. So we we waited a few, well, quite a long time for that new version to come out, uh, and then we began to sell that. But from memory, they then slapped us or you, I think, because we were selling through your Amazon seller account, uh, a cease and desist. Oh no, it wasn't them. It was um, it was the incumbent the manufacturer was iFetch so one of the competitors yes. had a patent didn't they yep. which we'd been told by yes. Asda uh, there was no issues around patents but it turned out that there probably was so so do you want to talk about that and what your experience was like selling that product on Amazon? I think what I learned most about from that was uh, Chinese uh, in general don't worry too much about patents. 
No, they're not even too worried about it at all. They're just happy to get a sale. Yeah. And um, it's uh, it's a bit of a challenge when you try to protect a product when yeah well, they don't uh, they don't have the same uh, typically the same consideration or respect for patent technology as other countries do. No, that's true. So. It was it was an interesting one too because we'd actually worked with them at the next trade show, I think this is around 2015, to improve the quality of the balls that were shot out because the balls were very soft and so the dogs that were that were using them when they were buying out, well, the doggy fund from us, we were getting a lot of negative feedback that the dogs were just chewing the balls out. So um, I think you had brought a whole bunch of balls, including a squash ball and a few other things as well from the United States to show them and say, look, I think you need to improve the, the quality of the balls so that they don't get chewed up as much. Uh, and they, yeah, and they, did, that was, they did all that. It seems like a minor problem, but that was a real challenge. That was huge. Yeah, we got a lot of one-star reviews. When the ball got shot out of the machine, mm. it uh, actually came out with a pretty good velocity. So if the dog is sitting there waiting for it, <laughs> yeah. and if the ball is too hard and it hits them in the eyeball, yeah. it, it, it won't blind them, but it hurts. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, when that happens, the dog loses interest in the machine. <laughs> Get scared. Yeah, but, yes, yes, we were crazy to do that, but uh, but we you know we made we made some uh, a little bit of coin out of that that product. So I think we made a few quite a few thousand dollars out of yeah. it. Maybe ten or fifteen grand. I can't remember. Maybe twenty. I can't can't quite remember what the profit was there. But um, but anyway, so so we got the letter though, didn't we, from iFetch? And I remember you saying, "Look, I think we need to pull in our horns on this one, and and perhaps you know." Um, stop selling it but we were lucky in that we were able to sell through the inventory that we still had left at amazon um without sort of too many issues and then uh and then soon after asda actually got in touch with us and said we've got a new pet toy which was the laser toy that was a cat laser toy the automatic cat laser toy called the cat dot let's let's talk about that story because that that ended up being that kind of kind of got messy didn't it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as well <laughs> we got in a bit of trouble with Esther over this one well, it's a very, that was a very simple when you took it apart it was actually a very simple product it was a little laser yeah. I think it's yeah. for, <laughs> I think it's for really lazy people because you can get a handheld laser and just mm. move it with your hand but what this did was you would put it on a shelf and the laser would project itself and automatically move in some <laughs> random pattern so and what was interesting is is that we, it was specifically <laughs> yeah. for cats. It was called a cat but, dot. Um, yeah. But when we first, uh, when I first uh, was playing with it, the dogs loved it. Well, <laughs> we were going to change the name to the cat dog dot. <laughs> but anyway, it, it was um, it was quite a novel product, and um, it worked well. But um, it. it- Another marketing challenge. Well, it was. As I recall, there was actually another seller who was selling the Cat Dot already. They'd already obviously had a a bit of a jump on us uh, in terms of getting inventory from Asda because they'd only just uh, started release. They'd only just released the product. So we had another competitor who jumped on Amazon with exactly the same product that we were looking to sell. Um, But they'd sort of pretended to private label. So we listed on their listing. Uh, and stole the buy box for a little while, so they they got pretty angry with us, and um, oh, they they stopped us from selling for a while, and yeah, it just ended up being really messy, and we ended up um, getting into a bit of fight with them. And unfortunately for us, Asda decided that if they were going to pick between George and Chris or the other 
company that was selling the product on Amazon, they chose the other company. So we ended up sort of losing that that deal, uh, which was which was a real shame because I think um, I mean that product's still on Amazon. You know, it's sort of doing ten or fifteen thousand dollars a month in sales from last time I looked. So yeah, we kind of struck out there. But um, unfortunately, as well, the relationship with our supplier, I guess, in a way, broke down. They, we've we've never really been in contact with them again. They haven't sort of ever reached out to us saying, "Hey, we've got." this xyz new product or whatever so yeah it's a bit of a shame but um but still it was a really really interesting you know selling electronics on amazon has a lot of challenges and uh you know like a lot of the courses that that teach you how to sell on amazon say say steer well clear of of, uh electronic items um i kind of agree with that and i wouldn't agree with it i think the return rates were very high but the profitability was pretty good and there's definitely lots of money to be made if you can handle the return rates Yeah. yeah it's really interesting yeah, and I took, I think after those two experiences um, and then listening to podcasts and different things, there, there turns out there were so many people uh, using different resources and tools to source products like we mm-hmm. did from China and put them on Amazon. And uh, because of my background in product development, I decided that maybe a better route for me is to look at products, look at niches, look at uh, product categories and develop something new and unique that I had the rights to and was improved, maybe a better price point or more value for the money, mm-hmm. and go ahead and produce the product and put it on the market. And that has turned out to be a much more successful uh, route than just competing, which ends up solely on price. When you're sourcing a product from China, other people can source that same product. And like we did, they can private label it or just compete on price totally. Exactly. And it's kind of a race to the bottom. Yep. And the profitability goes out of the product. And then what do you do? You're uh, you're stuck with inventory and then you reduce the product price to get rid of it. Yeah. So, so yeah. That's a tough one. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that proprietary type products, which there's a lot more work involved, um, you know, to get them to market with all the prototyping and everything else. And I wanted to talk to you about, you know, CAD and, and your new product, which is the computer keyboard stand that you've been working on for a while in a second. But having those proprietary products creates a, a huge level of defensibility. It's not as easy uh, and it does take some tenacity and some skills to be able to find the right people or indeed, as in your case, you're quite lucky in that you're able to, you know, CAD and, and prototype and 3D print and do all that stuff. But it does ultimately end up, creating a, a much more defensible and much more profitable you know, sort of range of products for you, doesn't it? I think the best example of that so far is the keyboard stand. Mm. It's called the ESC keyboard stand. And basically what it is, a triangular piece of plastic with some sticky pads on it so you can attach it to the bottom of your keyboard to change the angle. And it makes it, for most of us, more ergonomic to have a little higher not necessarily. There comes two of them in the box, so you can have virtually any height you want. But after you start using that, it's a big improvement from the little flip feet that are on your bottom of your keyboard, mm. which many times are too low or broken off or just not adequate to, to the That's job. right. And what was in? But yeah. um, sorry, keep going. But this is this is a new product category. I, it really couldn't even find where to place it on Amazon. And when I was developing the product, which sounds extremely simple, didn't turn out to be no. that way. But when I would ask people, I made prototypes and would put it under their keyboard and they would, the, the, the reaction what I get was, I don't need that or I don't want that or it doesn't do anything for me. I said, well, just leave it there for a day. 
just for me. Just leave mm-hmm. it there. Tell me what you think tomorrow. And almost 100% of the time, they say, I like, I, I went to take it off, but I dared not, I liked it on there. <laughs> so, but in the product development phase, the feedback I would get is, I don't need that. Mm. But the point I want to make is, once I put it on the market, because it was, it solved a problem for the consumer. What you're doing was basically solving a problem. Were you solving a problem for yourself or was this a problem that you already had yourself and that's why you wanted to solve the problem? Yeah, I already, I uh-huh. had, I had folded up a piece of cardboard and put it under there and I liked uh-huh. it. So I, I stuck with it. Yeah. But the point, I think the point I wanted to make with that was, is that it fit a new category. Nobody else was in it. I don't know. Well, it certainly was the best product when I launched it and still is mm-hmm. to this day the best selling product in the category. But when I'm, you don't have to, when you're the only one and you own that market or that little niche market, it is much more profitable than sourcing a product and competing with everybody else selling and the product. I love the way that you validated the product too by getting people to actually use the prototypes before you actually went into expensive production. And then, you know, I think it was around perhaps December or January this year, you asked, last year, this year, you know, you asked me to do a little bit of optimization on your on your listing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fun just doing a bit of keyword research, a bit of Helium yes. 10 and just on going, Amazon. right, well, uh, yeah, on it for Amazon and just going, right, well, the keywords for this product is, it wasn't keyboard stand because if you do a search on Amazon for keyboard stand, um, it was all about musical keyboards like pianos. Yeah. <laughs> But if, but if we refined it to yeah. computer keyboard stand and laptop stand, even though there wasn't as much you know, search volume, there weren't as many people looking for, for those specific search terms, they were the most relevant for what the product was. And so now you rank, I think, number one on Amazon for computer keyboard stand. And that really, without even launching it, it just took off, didn't it? And I mean, we ran a little bit of advertising. We had our optimization of our keywords in the title, in the bullets, in the description. You, you were able to do an incredible imagery and great photo- photography and, and, and all that stuff. So, and then the reviews started coming in, you know, and they're all five stars, four and five stars, a handful of ones as you always get. But yeah, it just took off. And, you know, it's now a really, really successful product. I thought, I thought the most fun, the most thing, the most fun part of that whole process was is after putting it on Amazon, I thought started to think to myself, nobody even knows to find it. How, how are they ever going to find it? There, there's no way to know what to search for. It's an unknown product, unknown category, unknown name. And it, when it started, yeah. so, I thought, how are people yeah. finding this product uh, on Amazon? And of course, as you, as you start growing in sales and you mm-hmm. get better reviews, it does get more accessible and more... I, there's more keywords or search words that people look for and they end up finding the product. And today it, it's just selling really well. Isn't it? I'll tell you what's interesting about it too is the way that it um, – you can you, you know who's buying it too just by when it sells. So your your sales jump massively over Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> so it's all these people in offices, yes. isn't it? It has to be. Yes. It, it, it's more than double the amount of sales weekdays than it is Over the weekends. weekend. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's just and then, an um, amazing product. You know, when you look on Amazon, who's buying it? It's at least 80% are women. And you start recognizing that it's done during business hours. Mm. So I think there's a lot of women in the typing pool or that are having risk issues mm-hmm. and really need that problem solved. And it does really help with uh, changing the position or the angle of your keyboard will alleviate stress, the repetitive stress. That's right. So you may not, you may not want to leave it in a high 
or low, but changing positions is really therapeutic for your carpal tunnel problems and different things like that's that. That's right. And that was, there were other keywords that we tried to optimize for as well, you know, like carpal tunnel and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's just a really unique product. Well, that's, but that's your, that's your thing. I mean, product development is like uh, falling off a log for me, but you and optimization, search engine up is just, that's your uh, specialty. You're really good at that. Thank you, George. It's uh, again, I say to a lot of my students that, um, you know, a lot of students want to go for these big keywords, but uh, look, I'll go for I'll optimize a listing for a keyword that might have only a hundred searches a month or three people a day, you know, but if it's, if that search term is massively, massively relevant and exactly matches what the product actually is or does, then that's a keyword that you definitely need to optimize for because you're just going to get so much more conversion. And the other bit that I love about your product without sharing too much of the detail around costs and and profit and stuff, but it is extremely profitable for you. So yeah, just really, really excited for you. And yeah, looking forward to to, to helping you out on the next, uh, on your next version of, of, of your product. I saw the prototype that you sent me in a video yesterday. Oh my God, this next one is going to go bonkers. So you're mining deep in the same niche. Really, really clever. Yes. And it actually is, it's going to have a very similar name so that people who actually find the existing product will also on the same page on Amazon see the new one. That sounds cool. And they do, they do roughly the same thing, but of course the new one will do it better. (laughs) Of course. That's what, that's what product development's all about. Just continually iterating and improving. Because what was what's the name of the? I've got one of your little um, SIM card holders. What was that called? That was the mobile safe. That's case. right. Yeah, it's a little it's a little drawer about the size of a credit card. I guess if you stacked five credit cards on top of each other, it's the, that's about the size of the product. And then the drawer slides mm. out, and in the drawer, in the bottom of the drawer, is a little we call microsuction pad, so that when you put in your little SIM cards when you're traveling, your tools micro SD cards, they cannot fall out because they're stuck to this pad. So you can tip this over with the drawer open. And then the drawer itself is it's spring actuated. Mm-hmm. So when it's open, it's held open. And when you close it, it's held closed all automatically. So you can put this in your pocket and safely keep your SIM cards, your precious SIM cards when you're traveling. Yeah. And that's been, uh, been selling that for Oh, jeepers, at least five years. Yeah, well, when you first released it, in, and I actually, you kindly um, gave me one in Hong Kong, and I still use it today. Everywhere I go all around the world, I've got SIM cards. I've got my little SIM card holder from GPG2, and uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It, really, really good product. It hasn't quite taken off the same way as, as uh, say, the, key, computer, the ESC computer keyboard stamp, but um, but it's still a, a, a happy little seller on Amazon, isn't it? It still does a few grand a month and ticks along quite well. Yeah, that's been, that was a real learning process for me. So when you make the SIM card holder, your target audience are those people who travel and change their mm-hmm. SIM cards. Well, first of all, the number of people in the population that travel internationally is quite small, relatively. Mm-hmm. And then those that those, of those that change their SIM card is smaller. Mm-hmm. And so you, your target market gets quite small. So in doing the research on the keyboard stand, you recognize that virtually every household in the world has one or more keyboards. That's true. So your target audience is astronomically bigger. And so even if you get a very small portion of the sales, the sales are much higher than they would be for the uh, mobile yeah. Talk to me about manufacturing then. Let's say that you've, well, not let's say, you, you've gone from a prototyping 
you know, you've actually prototyped the, the products. Who are you, are you, you're using uh, the same manufacturer as me in, in China, which is Linda. And Linda, I think, has uh, has also sort of branched out now into plastic molding quite substantially. I know she's working on a Kickstarter project at the moment with another friend of mine, Phil. And well, actually, it was an Indiegogo project, and she's got, she's doing a lot of plastic molding at the moment. So, um, as well as everything, yeah, you know, she's doing silicon for me and and stuff like that. What's your experience been like working with Linda? Well, this is my first. I met Linda before you did. You did. You introduced us. Yes, yeah. but this is my first experience making product with Linda. And uh, so far, so good. It's um, she is just sending me the first samples uh, from the mold mold that she made mm-hmm. today. Awesome. So it's a few day trip for them to get from China to here, and uh, when they get those, hopefully they look great. She sends me videos, yeah. keeps me updated. Yeah. Uh, but you don't know what you got until you get it in your hands. Yeah. So we'll see. This is true. What does it sort of look like in terms of cost to create a simple? Well, in this case, was well, a simple plastic mold for you know. Let's say if we just focus in on the uh, on the existing product, which is the the ESC computer keyboard stand. Um, what, what does the expense look like for somebody that's thinking about molding their own product? Well, if you do it locally in the United States, the simple molds may be twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and uh, in China about five. Okay, so significant difference, but still quite a quite an investment on often a product that you're not really sure if it's going to work or not. Uh, I know that with the plastic molding that she's doing, she's got something like fifteen tons of steel that's involved with this Kickstarter project or the Indiegogo project. Um, to that's going on into to actually creating an end product that you know, I think retails for close to three hundred. So yeah, you you really want to sell them. So yeah, there's a lot of that's all. That's all. A, that's a huge oh consideration in in deciding to go ahead with a product because somebody has to take the risk. Somebody has to make the investment. Yep. And you know the biggest companies in the world, whether it's 3M or Sony or any company, Apple computer. Um, somebody has to take that risk and they don't get it right all the time, for sure. Mm. There's so many product launches where they do tremendous amount of market research and different things. And when they launch the product, it's a failure. Yeah. The best, you know, the best example is I've ever heard about that was, is dog food. It wasn't Purina. It wasn't one of the big, it was one of the big companies Mm. that decided they're going to make the premium best dog food in the world. Mm-hmm. And they had the best packaging, the best marketing, the best of everything. And they put it on the market and it failed miserably. And they were really frightened because the investment was tremendous. And they had a big board meeting and they nobody really had an answer to the question. Mm. And this is a true story. The janitor was picking up in the room and he raised his hand sheepishly and said, do you mind if I say something? Mm-hmm. And it was a quiet time anyway. So they said, go ahead. He said, my dog doesn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) You would would think that would have been part of the market research. (laughs) Are you serious? This is crazy. That's your target market, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of an important factor, whether or not the dog likes it. You know, in in typically marketing, it's it's a person Mm. that has to really make the buying decision. Mm. Even when it comes to the dog, it's a person making the buying decision. Yeah, the ultimately, that's right. right. Yeah, you won't go back and buy it if the dog doesn't want to eat it. That's a yeah. waste of money, right? So, yeah, that's funny. Um, I just wanted to finish off on the story around the silicon mold um, that you created for the crayons. That I thought that was such a great idea, and 
and I know that you kickstarted to, and that was one product that didn't quite hit the mark or it just didn't really resonate with um, certainly with Kickstarter. What was the sort of reasoning behind that product? What what was it? What were you hoping to do with that product, and why do you think it didn't quite work the way you hoped? <laughs> was it? Those, are, those are great questions for all of which I don't have a great answer for. It seemed like a great idea. <laughs> it seemed like a great idea at the time, yeah. and I think in, in part of it is you, in order to. Um, I love the the development process. Mm. I love to develop new products. And so maybe, maybe I just went off on a really weird tangent with that one. Because, you know, if you're going to get into product development, one of the things you have to keep in mind before you ever get started is, is there a, a market for your product? That's number one. That's where it starts. Will somebody buy it? If I make it, will somebody buy it? And then the next question is, well, how much can I make it for and how much can I sell it for? Yeah. Well, when I was at 3M company pitching a product, a new product for them, they weren't interested in the product unless the retail price was at least seven times the manufacturing cost. Right. Well, just to, that's hard to do. Uh, but, you know, in a person, the first impression is you think, well, that's pretty greedy to, to ask that much money. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just the practical part of the business because... There is just a lot of people involved and a lot of expenses involved and everybody needs to get a little piece of the pie. Mm. And you'd be amazed how little is left when you get done at selling at uh, a retail price that's seven times your cost. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So the the crayon though, just circling back on the crayon thing, I mean, that was a really clever idea where I thought but basically what it was was a, a, a silicon molds which are in the shape of crayons. So it was like a little stack of them. I can't quite, you know, it's hard to describe what it was without, you know, we should should be doing a video of this one. But um, it, it kind of it looked like the udder of a cow. That's right. It looked like the udder of a cow. That's exactly <laughs> right. There was, there was a lot of teeth, yeah. I think is the most delicate way to describe it. But um, And then what you're able to do is to take the sort of the broken crayons because kids just, you know, chew up crayons and break them and, and you could you could sort of put all the crayons, you know, the, the pieces that were left of the crayons into these teats and then pop it in your oven and then actually sort of remold and create brand new crayons for your kids, right? Different colours or the yeah. same colour or, you know, however you wanted to do it. And um, it just seemed like a great idea. It just just And you kick-started that project, did a great video on it. But, yeah, it just didn't quite hit the mark even though from, you know, where I sit and... <laughs> I'm sure people probably listening again. That sounds like a really good idea. It just didn't quite work. It's really weird. Yeah, so sometimes. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea too. Yeah. Oh, George, George. It just didn't go. It just didn't quite go. So, yeah, not everything hits the mark, absolutely. And, yeah, I've had the same few issues like that over the years. So, um, I, was doing, I was doing product development and making products in Malaysia for a couple of mm-hmm. years. That's where we actually started making frog tape. Aaron. was in Malaysia because um, the big companies selling masking tape at that time were 3M, IPG, and SureTape. Mm-hmm. And actually, IPG was much bigger than 3M in masking tape. It's just that 3M had the market in blue tape, the more expensive mm-hmm. tape. And so when none of those would, would go with the idea, we had to make it ourselves. So we would actually buy containers of paper made in the USA from Canadian lumber, ship it to Malaysia, convert it, coat it with tape, convert it into rolls, and ship it back to the United States and sell wow. it. And so uh, that could be quite an expensive uh, mm. 
thing, time consuming. I, I lived in Malaysia two years developing that product. Extraordinary. Yeah, gosh. All right. All right. Well, listen, uh, we've, we're sort of at about 40 minutes or so, so I'll probably uh, wrap this up. But, George, I just wanted to say a massive thanks to you to come on the show and talk about your experiences in product development and the hits and some of the misses. And, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a great journey and I'm really looking forward to the next few chapters uh, of our friendship and certainly some of the new product ideas that you've got in the pipe and, and giving you a bit of a hand on Amazon. And, yeah, it's just really exciting. And, yeah, it's been been an amazing four or five, six years that we've uh, we've been hanging out together at various events. And so it's been a long time. Well, it's, it seems like a short time for us. We've had a lot of fun we doing sure have. it. Uh, had some good success. Mm. You know, they, they do say that maybe 10% of your ideas work out uh, as being profitable, but I think we're doing much better than that. So we make Indeed it good. We do. Good stuff, George. Well, listen, thank you so much again for coming on. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk real soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Links and show notes for this episode can be found over at theaustralianseller.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Sign up to my email over at theaustralianseller.com and I'll send you a note each time I publish a new podcast episode. Thanks so much again for listening.